it's time for another episode of Spies, Lies, and Private Eyes. Here's your host, Terrence McCauley. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Spies, Lies, and Private Eyes right here on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. My guest today is Jack Carr. He is a number one New York Times bestselling author and former Navy SEAL. Only the Dead, his latest book in his successful Terminal List series, is available from Atria wherever books are sold in any format. Jack, thanks so much for being here today. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me on. Great to see you. Great seeing you too, my friend. How uh, how would you describe your latest entry, Only the Dead? Well, there were a few things in the last novels that I left hanging out there. And, you know, the art of this, uh, I think, especially when you have a, a series character that goes on for multiple books, is to give enough resolution by the end of the individual novel that uh, the reader feels like they, for lack of a better term, got their money's worth. You just didn't write right. part of a continuing story and then leave it. But enough that there's resolution, but also just like with the end of a chapter, you want to make that person turn that page and start the next chapter. Same thing with the end of a book, with that last chapter, with that epilogue, you want to leave it so that they want to get the next book. So how do you do that without just uh, stopping? essentially like, oh, I hit my word count, done. Um, so I don't, so I don't, do that and I don't pay much attention to my deadlines. Maybe edit that out for Simon & Schuster. Just, <laughs> it's okay. Because uh, it takes however long it takes. Uh, and this story, you know, I thought when I, when I looked at my, because typically I start with uh, a, a, a title because I don't want any bandwidth wasted on thinking about the title as that bandwidth should be going into the story. I have about right. a, a word or two or a sentence uh, theme that's going to guide the writing process. I have a one-page executive summary that I write where mm -hmm. I, ask, I read it and I ask myself, hey, is this worth the next year and a half of my life? And if the answer is yes, then I read it again. And I say, well, if someone else were to pick this book up like this and walking by Hudson News or something in the airport and were to read a little bit about what the book was about here, either on the back in a paperback or right here in the front cover, flap jacket on a hardcover, uh, would they be willing to invest time that they're never going to get back in this story? And if that answer is also a yes or a probably, then I'm all in. Then I turn that into the outline and then I turn that outline into the narrative. But when I wrote this outline, it was like, okay, it'll be about 115,000 words. This is the sixth one. I'm kind of figuring this out, getting the feel for it at this point. Um, and then I blew right past 115,000 words, <laughs> past 120, past 125, 130, 135. So this one's about 139,000 words. So it's uh, the longest uh, to date, and it can also be used as a blunt impact weapon or a doorstop <laughs> if anybody uh, for, for another purpose. Um, so it took, uh, so that one took a, a, a little longer than, uh, than anticipated, but, uh, but that's just cause that's how long it took for the, uh, the story to, 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 to unfold. Um, and that's just kind of how it, how it goes sometimes. Um, gosh, that was a long way to answer your question, wasn't it? No, that was fine. That was fine. Um, how long do you, do you really spend a lot of time, uh, when you're writing sticking to the outline or are you the type of guy who is going to allow the story to evolve all before what you already have set out for yourself? 
Yeah, it's going to evolve and it's going to evolve naturally as I continue to do research into certain parts or certain characters. As those characters get to know each other through dialogue, I find that's where I get to know the characters, especially if they're new characters. Um, mm -hmm. I have a list that I start with just so I can see, okay, so last names, especially the Russian last names, those are difficult. Mm -hmm. They don't sound as, as similar uh, to one another. They don't start with the same letters or that sort of a thing to make it a little less confusing if you have uh, three or four Russian characters or whatever it, it might be. Um, but I try to, to so I so I do that. And um, uh, but as I'm as I'm doing that, I don't know exactly who they are. I know that this guy is the the head of the Russian FSB, or Russian intelligence. Uh, mm -hmm. This guy is, uh, let's say, the you know the head of the mafia or whatever it might be. But then I don't get to really know them until they start interacting and they start having that dialogue. Uh, and that's where I really get to develop the characters I find is through dialogue. Um, so I don't get to know them. So I, so I can't, I don't know how long those interactions are going to take as I'm putting in the outline. In the outline, I know that there's mm -hmm. going to be an interaction here, but I don't know how long it's going to take to develop whatever needs to happen in that chapter and, uh, and where those characters are going to go because they're having a conversation as I'm typing it out uh, and I'm getting to know them that way. So, um, so I, I, so there's room there. And then when I write the outline, I don't get stuck on a part that uh, I haven't figured out yet. So let's say if right. I'm, I get to, I'm in part one and I get to the end of part one and I'm like, uh, how's he ever going to get out of this? Uh, I don't spend weeks thinking about that. I know that right. I have a year to figure this out, a year and a half to figure this out, and I will figure this out. So I just keep going. I put a bunch of X's there and I just continue on knowing that I'll figure this out as time goes on. And I look at it kind of like the battle space uh, and the SEAL teams downrange. You have to make very quick decisions. The enemy's adapting to you. You're always adapting to the enemy. You're looking for gaps in the enemy's defenses. They're looking for gaps in yours. You're looking to capitalize on momentum and you're making very aggressive, creative decisions under fire. And I do the same right. thing, problem solving on the page. So it's really aggressive problem solving, um, but I have time. And if I mess up on the page, guess what? I can sleep on it. I can get up tomorrow and I can fix it. Uh, I can't do that when the bullets are flying. Um, but in this case, when you're working on the novels, no one's going home in a body bag. You're not letting anyone right. down. Um, I can go back and fix it. I can edit it. I can get it to as good as I can possibly get it uh, and then send it out there into the world. So um, it's still aggressive problem solving, still creative problem solving, very similar, but the stakes obviously are not nearly as uh, as high, which is which, which, which is great at this stage. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. And when you were in your previous career as a special operator, did you ever think that you were going to be talking about the conversations that people have in your mind with the characters that you create, like they're actually real people. I didn't think of it in those like uh, such tactical level terms. I just right. knew that day I would write after I got out of the military because that's what I wanted to do other than serve my country as a SEAL. I wanted to write thrillers because growing up uh, in the 80s, there was a finite amount written on special operations, very yes. amount written on SEALs. Uh, it started to get more and more as we got into the 90s, the mid 90s, and then after September 11th, and obviously after the advent uh, of the internet, uh, you, you can spend your rest of your life researching military special operations. But in the early 80s, mid 80s, late 80s, you could get to the end of the internet because that internet was called the library. And once you got <laughs> to the end of that internet, um, uh, then you, what else do I read? And so I 
about age, my mom was a librarian and I grew up surrounded by books and a love of reading, but okay. I was in fifth grade, I was, that was when I was starting to make that transition from uh, young adult literature into the same kind of books my parents were reading. So that's when Hunt for Red October came out by sixth grade. Yeah. I was reading the same kind of thrillers that, uh, that I'm reading and writing uh, today, the same kind of thrillers my parents were reading. So those were by Tom Clancy, by Nelson DeMille, by David Morrell, AJ Quinnell, JC Pollock, Mark Holden, Stephen Hunter, Louis L'Amour. I was reading all those books at a very formative time time. And a lot of those protagonists, those main characters in those books back then had backgrounds that I wanted in real life one day. So typically, right. yeah, the background of somebody, and even if someone listening to this didn't read those kind of books growing up, then maybe they watch TV shows or movies and the backgrounds to those protagonists are very similar in that usually mm -hmm. they were uh, Vietnam veterans. They were army special forces in Vietnam. They were Navy SEALs in Vietnam, Marine sniper in Vietnam, CIA paramilitary in Vietnam. And now in yep. 19... Five, they were a private investigator. They were a stuntman. They were a cop, whatever it was. But they had this background that added to the story and gave them some skills that they might need to solve problems through the course of that series television, that episode, that uh, that movie or the- That book. movie, yeah. Yeah. yeah so. it's, it, it was interesting because I, you just made me think of an interesting point because you had, back when we were kids, you had the Green Berets with- uh, John, you know, Wayne. John Wayne, which was not a great film, but it did it, it did a lot for the, the recruiting efforts. And then you had Delta Force, and then Clancy came out. Yeah, Delta Force came out, Chuck Norris, which was over oh, yeah. the top, Lee Marvin. But you know what? It was oh, the 80s. I love that movie. It's fantastic. <laughs> it's awesome. It's George Kennedy. You can't have a disaster oh, film without so George great. Kennedy. Yeah, yeah. To, to all of them. It was such a great film. I, I have great memories of going. I know exactly where I saw it. I was with my dad. I had such a great time with uh, that movie. I think it was 1986, if memory serves. Um, but uh, such a fantastic uh, movie for a kid at that age to see, especially oh. if you go into the military and more so if you want to go into special operations. It was very inspirational. And the first part of that movie actually is uh is very true to uh uh hijacking of twa847 so the first half of that movie isn't really that made up right right yeah i heard that yeah it was that they said it was kind of like two movies you know they took one script from one place and one script from another and, and made one movie out of it and the acting is actually pretty good at it when you, yeah. when you watch some of the supporting characters it was, yeah. it was a lot better than people think Oh, yeah. And then after that, that's when when Clancy came along. That's when you started seeing the ascendancy of other special operators in um, in, in literature, and then eventually in movies. Um, you mentioned some of the books like Hunt for Red October. That was a gateway drug for a lot of us who write thrillers. But I was wondering when you mentioned Nelson DeVille, Stephen Hunter. Did you what books of theirs caught your attention that come oh, to okay. mind? The Charm School. I have such great memories. I have my original paperback of The Charm School. Um, I read it. My grandmother read it. So we would share share thrillers. So I have great memories of uh, of sharing those kind of books with with her. Um, so The Charm School is just fantastic. But I've read everything by by Nelson DeMille. Uh, Nightfall is fantastic. Of course, that came out much much later than than Charm School. Um, right. General's Daughter. I mean, these are such classic books in the thriller genre by a master. Um, so yeah, uh, for sure, um, but those by, by Nelson DeMille. Um, but uh, the David Morrell, Brotherhood of the Rose, Fraternity of the Stone, oh. Night and Fog. I mean, just classic espionage thrillers where he takes the best of UK spy fiction, which is Jean Le Carré, and then uh, US spy fiction, which at the time was Robert Ludlum, and kind of combine yep. To, to make something new and move the genre forward. So I've been a uh, David Morrell uh, fan for a long time. And now we're, now we're dear friends and we were just, we were just talking this morning actually um, on email. So uh, just what a, what a great guy and what a good contribution he has made to the, uh, the thriller genre. Um, he oh God. Yeah. Know, 
that they have influenced, that he has influenced them. Kind of like Hemingway, you know, people uh, disparage Hemingway uh, sometimes. They have no idea that, okay, well, Hemingway influenced this next person who you love, who influenced you, who you're directly influenced by, but you haven't made the connection one step back. So it's always interesting to me when, uh, you know, and it's subjective, right? This is is an art form, just like anything else. So some- People are going to love some things and, and not others, but it's always interesting to me when uh, someone uh, disparages someone like a Hemingway and has no idea that he has actually had an impact on their writing that they don't even know about. So I always exactly. find that. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah, especially with David Burrell. I mean, everyone thinks of him, oh, Rambo, but no, he is much more than that. He has expanded on his own genre um, journey way more than that. And he's every book he writes is just, Fantastic. And he's also a writer's writer. He's he's a very generous and, and oh, good yeah. guy. Incredible. Incredible. And if someone listening to this hasn't read The Successful Novelist, uh, they should read that, you know, along with Stephen King's on writing. Um, but, uh, the, you know, you can almost, just like we were talking about with Finding the End of the Internet, you can almost read too many books on how to do something these days because there is a, I mean, it's a market for it. Um, right. But you have to execute. So uh, yeah. for me, you know, I've read Successful Novelist years ago uh, on writing years ago. I read Stephen Pressfield's series of books on creativity that he wrote that starts with The War of Art. Uh, it also goes into Turning Pro, Authentic Swing, Do the Work. But uh, that was good. Like for me, that was uh, a solid like how-to. And they're not really how-to, uh, uh, especially on writing and Stephen Pressfield books. They're so autobiographical in nature. And I, and I love that. I love reading biographies of authors. I find those very interesting. Um, yeah. You can almost read how to do so. Anybody who wants to be an author that's listening to this or a writer is listening to this, um, yeah, eventually uh, I would recommend uh, stop researching those how to and just sit down and write. That's the great thing about it. There's no rules. Uh, screenwriting, which I've gotten to do over the last few years now uh, for the show, there's a lot of rules in screenwriting. There's a lot of people. It's very collaborative. Um, you have to think about budgets and set pieces and, and all sorts of things. Um, no rules in writing. You have 100% creative control. Uh, mm-hmm. And for me, I've, there's no one has ever even mentioned uh, at Simon & Schuster or my, my agent that I should go, maybe you should go here next, or maybe you should do this, right? Do you mind laying off on, on this little bit? Or we think this would get you more readers. That has never, ever come up or even been hinted at. So it's wonderful to have 100% complete creative control and realize that there, there are really no rules. You have, a, you have a, a blank canvas on which to do whatever you want as an artist. So uh, that's, that's part of what I love about it. Yeah, yeah, it's like that boxing analogy where they say you can play football, you can play baseball, you can play soccer, but you can't play boxing. The only mm-hmm. way you can do it is by doing it. And the same thing with writing. You, I mean, the other books that we've all loved and mentioned are great, but there's no substitute for actually putting your butt in the chair, your fingers on the keyboard or a pen in your hand of paper and getting the work done. You can't, there's no other way to do it. No, but I think it's important to be a, a student of your, your genre uh, as well. I know the history of your genre and who the players were and who moved that genre forward and when and why and how that came about, what was happening in the world, um, and have the understanding of that history. And not just for writers, but for any any industry, really, understanding the history of that industry rather than just looking at it and saying, oh, this sounds cool. Maybe I'll give it a shot and jumping in um, without any understanding of uh, of where it is uh, on its journey as a, as a genre, as an industry, how it's been built, who built it, why. Uh, the history is extremely important, I think. Um, so understanding where that, where, where, who these authors were that uh, built this foundation for you now today. Um, yeah, there's, there's no substitute for reading either. Right. And it's exactly, yeah. I mean, all the best writers I know are avid readers. 
And uh, it, in, in, to your point, if you know what the history of your genre is, you're gonna be better prepared to contribute something to it. Like a lot of people love Hammett, a lot of people love um, Raymond Chandler, but they don't realize, yeah, that, I mean, the movies were cool, the stories were cool, but they were contemporary fiction for the time. Mm-hmm. It's, so if you're gonna write something now that's a hat and gat drama, it has to have some reason why you're doing that rather than just having characters in costume, otherwise it becomes empty. And that's why I think your work has found such a, a great audience is because there's a certain, um, there's a certain quality there and a relatability that people understand. And you obviously know very well from your experience. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's very intentional that, uh, that uh, well, I weave history in uh, this one in particular. I got a couple of authors in there that have uh, uh, one, one well-known, one not so well-known, unfortunately, today, but are in the pages of this thriller. And I also uh, talk about them in the acknowledgments of the, of the book as well. Um, but I like to do that. I like to, uh, uh, since I put so much time into uh, study, and it wasn't really a study of the history. It was just mm-hmm. a love of the history, a love of reading that did it. So it came from a place at such an early age where it wasn't like I woke up one day at age, let's say 45, and was like, oh, let's give this writing thing a try. What should I have been reading for the last 30 plus years, 35 years? Oh, okay. But now I'm reading those things through this eye that has a has a, 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 an ulterior motive to it. It has a, there's a purpose to it. Uh, it's I have right. to read this because uh, I, I need to know the history of the genre rather than as I grew up with it, I'm like, oh, I'm just going to, I'm reading the most dangerous game in sixth grade uh, by Richard yeah. back in the early twenties. Oh, this yep. is amazing. I love this. Uh, you know, one day I'm going to write a thriller based uh, that pays tribute to this. And that's my third novel, Savage Son. But there's no, there's no uh, like purpose, like, oh, I'm going to, st- I need to study this. Okay. Now I'm going to put this into, as in, part of my experience, what do I need to read next? It was more just out of the love of reading and that the magic in those pages, um, mm-hmm. which is, uh, I, I think a little different than just waking up one day and deciding you want to do something and study. Not, not that you can't do that. I think it's wonderful. You have, it's important to do that, but I just love the way that uh, I think this foundation that uh, I started building so early, just out of a genuine love of reading um, has, has really helped, has really helped as I, uh, uh, I, I can't imagine writing without that actually. Right. Right. Now, when you did start writing, did you, uh, for your first book, did you workshop it at all? Did you was it a, a labor of love that you did on your own? Um, I, I'd be interested to know how that uh, how your writing journey began. I know you grow up around a lot of books, but mm-hmm. I mean the the craft of actually putting your own book together for the first time. How did that turn out for you? Yeah, it's the same process that I use today that I described earlier, but instead of the one one page executive summary, I had uh, six, seven, eight, nine of them on a table, and Savage Son was one of them, and that's because of reading Most Dangerous Game in the sixth grade, knowing that one day I would write that tribute, but it's the characters weren't ready yet to explore the themes of Savage Son yet. Right. Uh, so I couldn't, st- I knew I couldn't start with that. And that's really the dark side of man to the dynamic of Hunter and Hunted. And I knew they weren't quite ready for that. So it was very apparent that the terminal list was the one to start with. It was the hardest hitting out of the gate, uh, with most visceral, most violent. Um, and so that's the one that I started with that. I knew that was going to be the one that would introduce readers to these characters. And then I got to the end of that one and I realized, well, it's still not ready for Savage son it would be disingenuous to pick this character up and then just drop him into a new situation uh without having to deal with the traumatic events of the first novel so i took him mm-hmm. on a journey 
journey of redemption uh, and initially uh, a journey where he had to learn to live again. He had to find his next purpose in life, his next mission in life. Uh, And I thought that uh, my editor at Simon & Schuster would just cut the first quarter of that novel, um, but she didn't. Uh, And it was a a risk not to do that, I think, because normally I think you just, hey, this worked in the first one. Hey, let's cut this first quarter of the second novel out um, and then just drop him into it uh, right there and then just go. And I'm really glad that no one suggested that at Simon & Schuster. because it did make things a little different out of the gate. And I was also cognizant of not wanting to be uh, looked at as a, uh, like a, a one trick pony. I wanted to right. tell the story that I wanted to tell and uh, not have any, any guidance. Um, but back to your original question, I had about six, seven, eight, nine of these different ideas that all have morphed into in one way, shape or form into the, the following novels. But uh, when I got to the end of that, which is about a year and a half process, I sent it to mm-hmm. about 20, I'm going to say 20, maybe 25 uh, different people, different friends, uh, and asked them to give it a read. And when I sent it out, I, uh, I said, okay, if one person comes back and says that they don't like something, I just toss that aside. Two people, toss it aside. Uh, three people, probably maybe just take a quick second look at it, but probably still toss it aside. Five of the 25 yeah. Take another look, certainly 10, uh, then <laughs> I'll go and, and look at it. So that's kind of how I went. And then uh, these days I have four people that I send it to, four just fans of the genre. Uh, I think three of the four were former attorneys. So they have this eye for detail. Uh, so they catch uh, a lot of things, uh, which is which is wonderful. Um, mm-hmm. and, but uh, but that's, how, that's how I've done it from the beginning. And that's how I've done it up through this book. And that's how I'm doing it with this uh, seventh novel as well. So that, that uh, seems to work for me and it's not my my outlines aren't super detailed where i'm just kind of turning them into sentences they are beginning middle end certain chapters that i know i want to have in there um so i can look at the flow i can kind of print it out and look at the flow and see okay i now i understand this visually um now it's time to dive in and i know know it's going to change uh now i can dive into the narrative so that's how it's gone from the from the first one and that's how it continues to go today it seems to seems to work for me yeah and it certainly is because you know each successive book gets better than the first one and you would think that and and it's true it's demonstrative and and just by reading the first one was great but then you actually you could see the evolution of you as an artist as you go through each of these books they're not just run and gun books there's actually a lot of character and plot development there along with some really awesome action and your writing process now as opposed to when you started was is fascinating because one of the questions i wanted to ask was how have you been able to handle your no kid all kidding aside your meteoric rise from a really great book to to what you are now and not allow that to affect your art if anything the books remain your core and they they are more solid than ever before how do you handle all of that because there's a lot going on a lot of distractions There's a lot going on, um, but the book, the product, now whatever it is, the widget, uh, in this case, it's a book, has to be the best that it can possibly be. That's the foundation of everything else. Um, so when I started down this path, I thought I could go live in the mountains in a cabin, uh, write a book, send it to New York, and then maybe do one interview and then get back to work on the next novel. Very quickly, I realized that's not how it is today. You, I mean, maybe there's an outlier here or there that can pull that off, but um, for the most part, you have to now embrace all these platforms uh, that weren't available to authors in 1985. Then you were more dependent on your publisher to get that word out, to schedule your interviews, to 
buy an ad somewhere in the New York Times or the or Wall Street Journal or whatever it, whatever it might be. Um, and, and that was fantastic, but they have limited resources and they have to allocate right. those resources toward the people who are probably going to make them money. So people with last names, uh, even back then and today, last names like King, uh, Grisham, right. Uh, Patterson like that. Um, and that's just, you know, that's just how it is. That's business. You have, out, you have limited resources you need to allocate effectively. Um, but today you can embrace all these different platforms and do a lot of the things that uh, legacy media or uh, legacy publishing um, uh, marketing departments have done for since the beginning of time, really, or the beginning of time, since they have uh, really established themselves as publishing houses. Um, right. you can do a lot of that yourself today, but it takes a lot of work. It takes studying the battlefield, uh, looking for those same gaps, looking how to capitalize on momentum, uh, figuring out what works for you, because now it is so personal, um, this interaction with people that you can have on Twitter and on Instagram and uh, through blog postings and through podcasts, your own, other people's, um, that helps grow this readership, grow your audience in a way that is authentic and real and personal and adds value to people's lives throughout the year. So any Mm -hmm. sense I write for Instagram or any sentence I write for my blog gets as much attention as any sentence I write for the book because people are trusting me with their time and they're never yes. going to get time back. So that's something I take extremely seriously. Um, so it's uh, it's that. So so I realized that about a month, maybe two months in the lead up to the first book's publication in in March of 2018. Um, and and but I'm learning. So I think it took a lot, little longer to figure out some of those things that now are more second nature as far as the social media engagement stuff. But now I added a podcast uh, that right. takes a lot more. As you know, it's a lot more work than it might look like from the outside because uh, you hear people talking about it and say, oh, it's easy. You download some software, you record, you put it up there. You know, anybody can do it. No barriers to entry. Maybe. Uh- Meh, it, I, I didn't find that to be true. Uh, I did figure out how to hit record on a uh, little, I don't forget what it's called, roadie master thing, and then a okay. uh, camera. So I figured that part out. That's it. When it came time to upload, no, I, no, I can't. I, it's important to know your limitations. <laughs> As a yes. uh, yeah, a wise cop in a '70s movie once said. Uh, so, <laughs> exactly so, I, right. so I got about that far, and then I brought in the professionals. So now I have a podcast uh, uh, production company that that makes it look professional. But you still have to do the research for the guests, and I've read every single book of every guest that I've had. No, sorry, at least one of their books. They have like 30 books, and I didn't know them before. Sure their latest, uh, maybe their last two or something. Um, but I've read books for every single guest thus far who's had books out there. And that takes a lot of time. And but what's great yeah. is that it also forced me to read some books that I probably wanted to read, but would have pushed to the side because there are so many things going on. And then right. a lot of those things made it in to the books. So uh, case in point, 1983, in this book, there is a, we have a, a new, almost have a nuclear exchange with the Soviet Union. And there mm-hmm. are three out there. So I had someone uh, that wrote the Able Archers um, come on, uh, Brian Mora, and he came on and, and uh, in reading that book, I got to incorporate that into the latest novel. And I probably would have put that to the side if he wasn't coming on the podcast. So so there is some overlap there as well that's that's beneficial, but it's a lot. So uh question was about how managing all this. Uh, I get less sleep, uh, don't eat as well. I get zero, <laughs> zero exercise. Um, I shouldn't say zero exercise. I walk with the dogs, I ski with the kids, you know, that sort of a thing. But right. You know, uh, there's very little me time. And if you go on, you know, social channels, it's, uh, you hear a lot of people talking about how important it is for take time for yourself. Uh, and, eh, you know, the writing time I feel is, is that I love it. I sit down and yeah. I'm 
myself and I, and I get to write and uh, research and I, I love that. But like the working on yourself part, uh, going out and working out for an hour and, you know, then uh, having my peat moss tea and hanging from boots for an hour and doing like a sauna and a cold bath and all these things. I mean, hey, yoga. I pick the kids up at school and I've got no writing done. <laughs> so, uh, so I don't know. I'm not, uh, uh, yeah, I, I guess I'm the anti, uh, not anti, I mean, do it if it works for you. Wonderful. Um, but for me, there's just a lot going on. So I had to prioritize. So I prioritized yep. things and at the bottom of the list is, <laughs> is me right now. Uh, right. That's just how that's just how it goes. But I love love the writing. I love learning about the screenwriting process. I've been learning about it for the last few years. Got to contribute right. to all the scripts. Now I'm writing the finale to the spinoff series for Amazon, and uh, uh, and same thing for True Believer. I'll be writing one of those scripts as well. Uh, so it's I love it. I love it. And, I'm, yeah. and some things that I've that that uh, that I learned from screenwriting have made their way into the novels. Um, certainly has impacted the last two. But uh, not as far as process, but as far as development, really. And uh, mm -hmm. it's fantastic. I love, I love what I'm doing. Yeah, it's all part of the uh, process of inspiration. You just can't find it in the usual places. And as more opportunities come to you, you have to be willing to take it from where you find it, right? Yep. And then you got to ask yourself, uh, you know, the question, how does this add, does this add value to what I'm building? And because uh, now you really have to say no to things and I'm not the best at that. Um, I'm just happy to be here type of a type of a thing. Um, but I just right. want to continue to build the next book. I want it to be better than this book. The next sentence I write, want to be better than the sentence before. I want the mm -hmm. next book to move the genre forward, even if it's just by a degree. That's always what I want to do is get better, deliver a better product uh, and move the genre forward, even if it's just slightly. Um, mm -hmm. That's always in the, in my head as I'm, as I am writing, uh, as, as, as one of my goals, just want to always get better. Just, just, I also want to get you know, like anything else in life. I want to be a better husband, better father, better writer. Um, and that's just, yeah, I guess that's just natural. I've yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's an, it's an evolution process and it's, it's been fascinating to see your evolution process over the books from journalist all the way up until this one. Um, what is next for you? I know you just said you were working on a lot of stuff, um, what are you, uh, uh, what's the next book in the series going to be? Yep. So working on the next, uh, book right now. Um, last night at midnight, it was pencils down on scripts for the spinoff series. Cause there's a, the, of the day we're recording this anyway, um, a, uh, a writer strike. So I'm not part right. of it yet. I, I think I would be after this writing this finale, but I'll write the finale episode as we're, uh, as we're filming. Cause so much will change. Like the actors bring certain things, um, uh, things naturally change based on uh, what someone's brought in episode one. That affects episode three, which means in turns that it affects the finale. So those things build up through these multiple episodes. So uh, so I have a little bit of time on that anyway, and it's it's pencils down regardless. But uh, we were right. working on the uh, the scripts that we do have, trying to get as many out as we possibly could and into the production um, process before that that strike hit. So yeah, so it's pencils right. down on that, which actually gives me a second because I because I plan on working on all those scripts all the way through the spring and summer. So now it's uh, once again that so that's pause. Um, uh, right. So now what do you do? You adapt and uh, redouble efforts on the book, knowing that there'll be an avalanche of, uh, of work that you can find <laughs> in the lead up to filming if the strike goes right up to, to filming. So, I, you know, who, who knows? But, uh, you know, that's just how life goes. But yeah, so there's that's in the works. Um, there is a nonfiction uh, book in the works as well. I've always wanted to write nonfiction, uh, but not about me. Uh, this is right. the 1983 Beirut barracks bombing, uh, so Marine barracks bombing in, in Beirut. Ah. Uh, there's not really the, the definitive work on that yet. And uh, I work these 
different parts, pieces of history into my, my novels. And that was a very impactful uh, incident for me growing up just because I was a kid, I was young, about to, I was 10 years old. And uh, I saw these Time Magazine, Newsweek, all the yeah. newspaper uh, that would come across our dining room table. And I'd read those because I knew I was going into the military already at that point. Um, and I mm. essentially, I knew that the wars of the future would be, uh, especially for special operations, would be against these different terrorist organizations. So that was very impactful, as was TWA seven, which we mentioned earlier, Achilles Laurel, right. 103, um, before all of this, um, the uh, Iranian hostage crisis, 1979. Those are some of my earliest memories. So, so I wanted to, to, to choose one of these events and start writing nonfiction and uh, do it as a series. So uh, mm -hmm. the first one is 1983 Beirut Barracks bombing, doing the research right now, working with a historian on it. Amazing guy, James Scott. He's a Pulitzer Prize finalist. Um, and, uh, and we're working on this thing together and it'll come out in the fall of 2024. So about a year and a half uh, out wow. from that. I thought I'd do one a year uh, in the nonfiction space, but then I quickly realized that uh, the amount of research it takes to do these things right, it's right. Gonna, so, so it's looking like every two years uh, for the, for the <laughs> nonfiction ones, um, just because it's there's you have to do so much research for these things, uh, and we yeah, of course I want to do it in a very thoughtful way, a very respectful way. Sure. Um, uh, so yeah, so I'm, I'm really excited about that. Uh, but there's all sorts of projects in the works and it's just, I just feel so fortunate to, to, uh, to, to be so busy, I guess, is the, the best way to put it. Very fortunate indeed. And the best way a lot of people can follow you is by following you on social media and also on your website, right? What's your uh, website handle? How That's right. So the yep, officialjackcar.com. That is the website. And there's a, there's a blog I update uh, probably once a month or so, sometimes more so like when during a book drop like this, there's probably three or four or five different blogs. It'll, it'll come out this month. Um, so that's the, that's, that's a great way to, to, uh, to keep up with what's going on. And then social media at Jack Carr USA. Uh, I'm on Instagram, uh, Twitter, and I think it posts to Facebook also, but I, Two was enough. Um, so I do, I, I engage on Instagram and Twitter and I try to use it as a way to say thank you for everyone who took a, uh, took a risk on me as a new author and mm -hmm. told a friend, whether it was on social media or was somebody at work or was a family member around the dinner table. And uh, so I just sincerely appreciate all that. So I try to get back to as many people as possible just to, to say thank you because it's, uh, it's sincerely appreciated. And you've got your merch on your website as well. Got the merch. That's right. Yeah. That. So, <laughs> so uh, yeah, a lot of uh, a lot of different things on there now, from uh, from from watches like this to uh, <laughs> the shirts and hats and barware tumblers, uh, all sorts of stuff. Whiskey glasses that are all custom. That are actual whiskey bottles that are that are cut off and sanded down, and uh, you know things those things that I find uh, fun and interesting. So uh, there's a lot of that stuff on there. Yeah, no, and it's all great too. And it's, it's it's clear that you're having a lot of fun doing it and, and expanding yourself, expanding your brand, and expanding your artistry. So we really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to be here, Jack. Thank you so much for sharing all of your experience with us. Uh, thanks so much for having me on. It's great to see you, and hopefully, I'll see you in person one of these days again soon. Absolutely. Thank you very much, and thank you everybody for listening to another edition of Spies, Lies, and Private Eyes right here on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. And don't forget to stop by bestthrillerbooks.com where they review a lot of great books, including Jack's latest and all of his other stuff right there for great giveaways and great reviews, bestthrillerbooks.com. See you next time, everybody. You have been listening to Spies, Lies, and Private Eyes with host Terrence McCauley on Authors on the Air Global Radio Network.